He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is John Katsimatidis from the Cats Roundtable. We have a great show for you today. We have Governor David Patterson, Congressman Peter King, uh, Mr. Hoogan, uh, who was the head of the GOP in New Jersey, uh, Eric Schuffler from the Ferry Hawks, and uh, Bernadette Castro. Everybody remembers her. Uh, captain Ed Mamet, retired NYPD captain. We have award-winning f- filmmaker Theory, Conjunat, on the Mother Teresa movie coming out. And let's start off the show with Michael Stoller talking about the real estate industry in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning I have Brad Honeyfeld, who is the founder co-chairman and CEO of the Briad Group, an organization that owns 11 hotels, 1,800 rooms, and has been involved with Wendy operations and other hospitality operations since he was 19 years of age, correct? Yep, that's correct, Michael. So how do we look at the time today, the hospitality, the hotel industry specifically, as it compares to a couple, you know, 2019, the other recessions? What's your thoughts? Well, every... uh Every cycle is different, and uh, clearly, you know, this is different than the 2007-2008 cycle. But there is capital out there. We just started a new Marriott residence in in Ocean, New Jersey. It's our first one in four years. It took five years to get the approvals. So there is capital out there. And, you know, you know when the, there was dislocation in the market back, you know, nine months ago or so, I mean, I called every friend of mine and others who eventually introduced me to Meridian, who found me, you know, two banks that I haven't used in a long, you know, ever, which is Deutsche Bank as well as Metropolitan Bank. And so I was able to refinance a number of properties, probably about $300 million worth of hotel debt before the three banks collapsed. So, you know, really working the capital markets, I've never used a broker before. Meridian did a great job, Kerry Pollock and, and Ralph, the team. You know, it's the relationships, I think, that, you know, I, you have to work to build. I have a pref lender, Greg Friedman, out of Peachtree. Okay, for Group. my audience, explain what pref lending is. Well, that's really between uh, you have equity, you have you know your own equity, then you have you know pref, and then you have obviously senior lending. So, Greg has and I have had a relationship in the Peachtree Group. Is he based in Atlanta? He's based in Atlanta, and uh, originally we did uh, six uh, hotels uh, in approximately 2019, around 50 million dollars worth of capital, and uh, including a new build in San Diego, and some of them were just completed before the pandemic. And so that capital is is expensive. Uh, however, it's impossible today at least where I'm at, you know, financially to be able to put in, you know, $14 million, $20 million per hotel, uh, you know, if you're only borrowing, able to borrow 60%. So where Greg fills the capital stack is really in the middle. And, you know, they own and operate you know, about 90 hotels on behalf of investors, but they have about 200 other investments in hotels and other CREs. So, you know, it's through those relationships, along with both Marriott and Hilton, who have supported me. So why don't you explain well. what Marriott and Hilton have done with regard to supporting hoteliers? Well, they're using all the tools in the, in the tool chest, I'll tell you that, whether it's uh, potentially credit enhancements, whether it's key money, 
um, the, the folks, you know, you know Noah, uh, you know, at Marriott, Adam Shear, these people really are trying to support their, their developers and they need to get new product in the ground. The brands are asset light. They're doing phenomenally well. Um, you know, Hilton's doing phenomenally well. We're about to hopefully put a new home in the ground as well. And I mean, Hilton just opened up three new hotels in Manhattan, two in Times Square specifically. Yeah. I mean, listen, all these things have been in the works for years. It's putting hotels in the ground now in a market that is very dislocated and figuring out the capital stack. And it's not easy. Um, the residents in an ocean, you know, we had to close on the land first because we were going to get, you know, tied up with the landowner after five years. We didn't want to lose that. And now we're going to be closing with Amboy Bank, which is another one of my banks in middle of New Jersey um, here in the next, you know, this next uh, few weeks or so. So it's, not everything it's, comes together. I mean, Deutsche Bank is a huge bank, uh, but Metropolitan and Amboy are basically smaller community banks. Right. It's interesting that they are going into the market now in this area. They haven't been involved. I mean, I know MetBank has been involved with the nursing homes and other unique businesses, but Today, somebody might say, why hotels? Well, I'll tell you what. We had the best August that we've had. Um, we have four hotels that we refinanced out of the chute, about $130 million with Deutsche Bank. Uh, and we've done three, roughly, uh, with, uh, with MetBank. So significant amounts you know, uh, uh, of, of, of capital. And I think that you know, I was used to dealing with so many of my regular banks and then things just locked up, you know, for different reasons. It's not necessarily the, the people that were there, but, you know, banks either grew in size or different circumstances. Yeah, so and, and, the, run. and the collapse of Signature and, uh, uh, you know, the first Republic Bank didn't help the world. Well, I mean, the reality is I saw that coming to some degree. I was in front of this. I was really working 24-7, six months ahead of time before. I mean, you could just tell that something was going to happen. I still think that there's other things that could happen. Another one of my great banks is Preferred Bank, which is a, a Taiwanese bank. Uh, at really, you know, I'll say that, but they're a transitional lender. They're really out of L.A. and, and, and Flushing. And um, they've done two hotels, and they actually were the, you know, takeout loan uh, in San Diego, uh, when we refinanced it and just opened, that was probably my largest project, and uh, unfortunately ran twenty-five million dollars over budget. And you know, Greg was there to help me. So the reality is, uh, you need to be resilient, persistent, and never give up. And uh, there are just definitely times that you want to. But okay. You can't. So what about the the Big Island of Manhattan? I haven't looked at your. I, I have looked at your names, and I don't see anything in Manhattan. Yeah, I'm really not a Manhattan type of person. I mean, that's uh, I leave that up to uh, some of the people that are that are here. My good friend Tyler Morris, who's uh, I sold my originally hotels to, and uh, or the right. first ten hotels, and he's his, his TWA he's been, hotel. He's been, you know, truly successful. So I I stay out of that. Leave that to Tyler. Okay, it's uh, really good that you came in in this heat of the summer, which you know maybe will help uh, the tourism over here. I'd like to thank Brad Honingfeld of uh, the Briad Group. See you next week. Thank you, Michael. What is today is former Governor David Patterson. We get together every Sunday morning to review what's going on in the week in our city, our state, our country. David Patterson, you make headlines every week when you're on our show. What's going on this week that you feel is important? Well, what's different this week than last week, John, is that finally... Finally, the federal government is going to send money and services to New York to try to mitigate 
this rising number of migrants who have nothing to do. They, have, they can't work at a time when hostile workers, uh, not enough of them, construction workers are down, cleaning staff is down, landscaping workers are down. And yet the federal government did do that. Finally, uh, Governor Hochul's trip to Washington and Mayor Adams' relentless exposing this issue has made some headway. But I'll tell you, John, in addition to the problems we're having, I can't remember the last time that the federal government ever encumbered a municipality in this way and sent nothing to try to be of assistance. Now, in 1991, there were people trying to escape after kind of a revolution in Haiti, and they were interdicted by the United States and taken to Guantanamo Bay. But that was really to save their lives. That was like a mission of mercy. But I just can't remember last time this was done before, but the federal government, uh, while they're sending all their problems, they think, to New York City, had better realize that for the last four years, the number of migrants in the country has stabilized at between 38 and 40 million. It's now 46 million. That's up 14 percent this year. In addition, on Wednesday, a federal judge has ended the DACA program. That's Deferred Action Against Children Arrivals. What does that mean? I don't think uh, the average person doesn't know what that means. I don't know if I know what it means. I think it meant that children who came to this country at a young age would not be deported. Now, if you're born in this country, you're automatically a citizen citizen if you want to be. But many children were brought here at a young age. And this stopped the the deportation of that group, giving them a chance to grow up in the United States and become citizens like other Americans. Now, now, we had Congressman Smith on last week from New Jersey. He was complaining that there's 85,000 kids or 65,000 kids missing. In other words, they came over the borders. They don't know who they came with. And nobody knows where they are. I mean, what what happens with them? That's shocking. I don't know if the, you know they've assimilated into families, or a lot of cases they may be uh, victims of sex trafficking. It's, all the outcomes are probably not good if that number of young people has disappeared. And anyway, the federal judge did not order that they be deported, but that would certainly be seemingly the the, the next step there. So we have just dug ourselves into a hole as a whole country, but really not having reasonable responses to the fact that basically everybody wants to live in the United States. And we get that, but the resources don't allow for it. And in some cases, the migrants themselves are being blamed. It's really not their fault. There was no plan. And there still really is, this is a mild reaction to what is a major problem. The numbers, nobody understands the numbers because supposedly Mayor Adams said we had 120,000 come into New York, and now 60,000 are still on our New York City's payroll. Nobody understands who's coming, who's going, where they are, and what did, what they, what's going to end up happening. Do you understand it any better than I do? Well, the mayor is basically saying that it costs $9.3 million a day to have migrants here, and that 10,000 migrants are coming into the city each month. So if you, uh, you know, multiply that out, it's a pretty big number. And really, over a three-year period, 
he's estimating that we would spend $12 billion on just this situation and with not getting anything back from it. In other words, other than the fact that the children are going to school and theoretically being educated so they could become part of the workforce at some point, but only that's the only relief for the migrants that are actually here. And I think blaming a lot of things on them is, is, is not helping the situation. But what the blame really belongs at the seat of government in Washington. The federal government has done this and um, really has been rather smug when uh, the media has tried to ferret out why they did it this way. What else would you like to talk about this morning? You know, there's only seven weeks or six weeks to go to 51 out of 51 city council seats in New York City, and we decide which way we're going. Any, any ideas? I think the city council seats will probably, you know, those who are running for a second term, they have four-year terms, and they're term limited at eight years. I think most of the incumbents win. Uh, incumbents usually win, John. You pretty much have to sleep with the flies to get kicked out of office. Is at an assembly race, which was won by the Democrats, uh, but he only won by 500 votes, 55% to 45%. In Queens, it it definitely shows right now that I think the issues, the unsettled issues about migration, the persistent fear of crime, and the very negative feeling that people have about the educational system that we have right now is creating closer races. And theoretically, in the seats where the incumbent has had to step down in the city council, in those seats, that that could become a dogfight. I would think it would be closer than usual. Governor David Patterson, thank you for coming on this Sunday morning. God bless you and God bless America and uh, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you, John. You as well. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Congressman Peter King. Congressman King, where would you like to start? There's so many messes around. You tell us. Okay, John. First of all, it's great to be with you on the you know, great Sunday. I guess you know, one thing I was looking at this week is President Biden. I'm not, I'd say, anti-Biden and uh, everything he does. Like, for instance, he went to Asia and he went to India, and he's basically trying to form a group of nations to weaken China. He's uh, India, Vietnam, and then before that with South Korea and Japan. So on paper, all this sounds like the right thing to do, and you want to support him on it. But then afterwards, he does a news conference. He's almost incoherent. He seems like he's lost. And so it's, this is not the image that you want you know, the leader of the you know, greatest country in the world to be having when we're in such crisis. And this week, David Ignatius is a big writer for The Washington Post. He's a powerhouse behind the scenes in democratic politics. He actually said that he thinks Joe Biden should announce that he's not running for president. And Kamala Harris should announce she's not running for vice president. The only reason I bring this out is that even when the president tries to do the right thing, he has a hard getting the message across. And that's going to, I think, have an impact on the American people and on the world. So that's something to watch as we go forward, whether or not he's really going to run again or if he can run again, especially with the growing problems about his son. Now, back to a local level here in Queens, there was an open assembly seat, a special election. And I would have thought, and I think you would have thought, that if there was any time when Republicans should have made an input, it should be now. When you had, you know, the migrant issue is just taking over in Brooklyn and Staten Island and Queens. Queens especially with the, there's a thousand beds, it's 800 beds outside Cleveland Hospital in a tent uh, for these uh, uh, migrants who have no jobs, who are unvetted. And yet Republicans lost that seat by 10 points. Now, as you point out, 
it was really since only 4,000 people come out, 200 votes being switched around would have added up to 400, and that would have been 10%. But to me, the fact that the Republicans couldn't draw out voters in an election like that, a special election especially, where, you know, the anger of the people, the uh, distrust that the people have for government, and the Democrats control everything, there should have been a massive re- uh, turnout of people voting Republican. So really, the Republican organization has to do something. The community activists who do a lot of yelling about the migrants, they have to get politically active. It's not enough just to talk and demonstrate. Congressman King, you gotta get I, was, to come out. Yeah. I was very disappointed because of everything that's going on in New York State uh, with the bail law and with the migrants situation that the Republicans weren't able to overcome the Democratic thing in, what was it, the Whitestone area? And uh, I just don't understand it because our city, our state is going southwards. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, this was, to me, uh, politically, it was the ideal time for the Republicans to pick up seats, to pick up the seat. And governmentally, it's the right thing to do because the Democrats in New York and in uh, uh, New York City are failing at every turn. And right now it's on the doorstep, but not just on the doorstep, it's inside the House in Queens where you have, again, so many of these migrants, illegal migrants coming in, and the, the mayor seems incapable of handling it, the governor, the president. And if nothing else, this is a protest. I would have thought that the Republicans would have been able to get more people to come out to vote for their candidate. And it should have been a referendum. Well, on there was only 4,500 votes cast. They lost by uh, 10 points, so that's, they lost by 400 votes or half of that or whatever. So it's not that many votes. And I would, I would have thought that the Republicans would have done a better job of getting out the vote. Yeah, John, you're right. First, if you lose by 400, that means all you have to do is turn around 201 and you win the election. To me, in an election like this, a special election where tensions are so strong and the Democrats are so much on defense, I thought there would have been outpouring of people voting Republican, if nothing else, just to send a message that they've had enough. So if the Republicans can't win this, it doesn't really pretend well, well where we're going. In six uh, weeks, six, six, yeah. six weeks or seven weeks, you have 51 out of 51 city council seats. I mean, uh, I would say the Republicans should have a game plan on winning uh, and making a difference against the socialists. Look, I'm not against Democrats. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-common-sense Democrats. I am pro-common-sense Republicans. I'm, a, I'm against the, the socialists that are trying to destroy our city. Well, you're right about Democrats. You're going to go like Bob Holder in Queens. I mean, he's a uh, solid, common-sense, conservative-leaning Democrat who wants to defend his neighborhood and his community. So, no, it's not Democrats per se, but it's the people who are in the ruling positions now in the Democratic Party. So there's some seats we have to win. We have to win the city council seat down in the Bay Ridge area of uh, Brooklyn. That's uh, absolutely essential. And there's others around that, and listen, can't win all of them. We're probably not even going to come close to majority, but Republican leaders should be focusing on the three, four, five, six, seven, eight districts eight, you know, that they feel they can turn around in this election. By doing that, that's how you send a message. That's how you put common sense into the minds of the other Democrats. They realize they could be next, but... Uh, I don't really see it happening. Listen, we've got some great candidates and we have some great uh, office holders, but we have to build on uh, more of them. We just really have to. And, uh, Congressman, the other big thing in New York, we're doping down on New Yorkers. You know, between the marijuana, there's 2,000 shops now in New York City. I mean, what the heck is going on? 
John, there's the marijuana shops, and at the same time, some of the legitimate businesses are closing down, or they're basically locking their stores down because they're afraid of being vandalized. You have so many people with high incomes who are moving out. You have so many, again, stores in minority communities being shut down or being having their hours dramatically reduced. But you're right, though. Listen, I'm not. Uh, I I never smoked pot. My wife never did, but you say when you walk down the street, you might as well be smoking it. There's so much of it. My God, it's uh, it's everywhere. And we can have a whole debate over whether or not it should be legalized. The fact is that you can't have a society going heavily in this one direction of being pot smokers, of uh, working from home. We go through the whole thing. The crime rate, uh, you know, going up the way it is. Or even if it's not going up, it's not coming down from the high levels it was at. Crime is much higher than it was back in 2019 or 2018 and 2017. And it doesn't seem to be much hope in sight on that. I hope the new commissioner, I, I thought the previous commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell, did a phenomenal job. I hope uh, Commissioner Caban can keep it going in that direction. So far, I think there's some questions out there. So we have to, again, I hate to sound apocalyptic, but it's almost like we could be losing our civilization or losing our culture. And we have no borders. You have an abuse of pot smoking. You have communities that can't keep stores open. You have people who, who finance the jobs, who support the jobs, moving out of the state. And how many people I run into are on their way to North Carolina, on their way to Florida, on their way to South Carolina. And the city's not going to be able to survive if this keeps up. It really isn't. Now, we had the good days of Giuliani and Bloomberg. Since then, it's really been a downward spiral. I was hoping Eric Adams could turn it around. Personally, I think he's a very nice guy. But uh, there's an inconsistency there, which is hurting the city. He's got to get firm. And also, John, on the issue of migrants, when he and the governor keep saying the issue is getting more money from Washington and giving work visas, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. I mean, this is all it's going to do is maybe alleviate it temporarily, but it's going to encourage more migrants to come to New York. If they know that there's going to be hotels and jobs available for them, then they'll come up here. So we can't stop illegal immigration by calling it legal. I mean, it's the, our borders are crumbling, and it's going to... And there's a technicality in the law that de Blasio uh, signed that if they live here for 30 days, even though they're migrants and non-citizens, they can vote. Yeah, that, I believe that law is on hold. It's in court. But no, if that's ever implemented, that will definitely change the face of the city. And I'm not talking about racial or ethnic or religious change. I'm talking about the people who come here if you're, not, if you're not coming in legally, right away you're coming in with an attitude, with a disregard for the law. In the past, we had immigrants who had to go to Ellis Island, who had to be vetted. But by the time they got here and were on the path to citizenship, they knew what America was all about. They knew what hard work was all about. They knew what the culture of the city was about. Yep. Each ethnic group had its own pride. But just to come in there randomly the way it is now and be uh, all living in the Roosevelt Hotel, getting their motorbikes, getting their iPads, their iPhones, and it's, it's just it's, it's really going to change what New York is all about. Congressman Peter King, thank you. Have a great uh, – is it fall yet? It looks like we're on the border between uh, summer and uh, fall. Have a great weekend, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. We'll see you Monday. Thank you, John. See you then. Well, there's an election coming up in about six weeks, maybe seven weeks, but close to that. And with us today is the chairman of New Jersey GOP. They have a big election coming up, Bob Hugan. Bob, what the heck is going on in New Jersey? Hey, John, exciting times. You know, uh, a little windy out there with this uh, tropical storm going by, but the wind is blowing in New Jersey, and we're going to see a big change in November. How many seats are up, and how many, uh, well, give me a, what's your a theoretical scoreboard? Well, 
Every seat in the legislature in New Jersey is up this year. All 40 Senate seats, all 80 Assembly seats. Republicans have a, need, need to win three more districts in the Assembly to take a, a leadership role there, and need to win four in the Senate to take a majority there. And so um, we're very excited about the possibilities. Education is a big, big deal in New Jersey. The governor and the whole legislature there, the there's a guy who's the chairman of the Senate Education Committee. He's running away from all the things he endorsed and supported about gender identity for four-year-old kids and no parental involvement, assuming parents are abusive. You can't tell the parents what the kid tells you, secrets between the school and the student and not including the parents. So education is a big issue. The environment is ridiculous, not ready for prime time. Offshore wind, which is just causing all kinds of environmental problems, is a big deal. Obviously, cost of living and crime are big issues, rising issues in New Jersey. So a lot of important issues, and we have a, a real chance for the first time in a long time to move our state in a much better rightward direction in a correct way and win important seats this November. And give us what the big issues are in New Jersey. When, when the average citizen is walking around New Jersey, is there any particular issues that they're mad as heck about? You know, it's, it's frustrating when you look at how unaffordable it is to live in New Jersey. But people are working so hard, whether it's two jobs or, or two or three people in a household working. They don't have time to learn all the issues about politics and all this other nonsense that goes on. And so it's kind of a little bit of resign to the economic problems of the state, but they're starting to People are starting to realize they can affect their pocketbook if they vote the right way. But the big issue this year, no doubt, is education, where the administration here in New Jersey has gone crazy far, far left and telling parents they're abusive of their kids. We can't trust the parent. The parents shouldn't be involved in the kids' education, and they shouldn't have any choice. In six years as governor, Governor Murphy has opened one charter school, and we have tens and tens of thousands of kids just in Newark alone on the wait list for charter schools. He just, they don't care about the parents, and, and parents are finally standing up. It's the one issue that will get people out to vote this year. There's an off year for us in the state Senate, the highest, and highest ticket on the ballot, highest office on the ballot. And if we get a turnout, we're going to really sh send shockwaves to the political world by taking back New Jersey. Uh, Bob Hogan, uh, there's a lot of people mad in New York about congestion pricing. Governor Murphy said he was going to file a lawsuit, and he's, he's against it because it's going to hurt New Jerseyites. Is the GOP supporting Governor Murphy on that and, and to fight the congestion pricing situation? You know, we, we hold him accountable. He acts like he's buddies with Hochul and all the big politicos in New York, and it's one big, blue, wonderful love fest. And now, now when, when he realizes that they're screwing people in New Jersey and there's no compromise, there's no discussion, it's not being done in a coordinated way, he's going to have to fight this and make it happen himself, even though we certainly agree the fact that it should have been negotiated in a way that didn't hurt the lower-income people. And, and New Jersey supports New York in so many ways in terms of both taxes and all the logistical support we give to New York. So all we're asking for is a fair deal, to sit down at the table and talk about what's good policy. And Murphy, for all the stuff he talks about, having a good partnership with Biden and with Hochul, what's he gotten? New Jersey gets the short end of the stick again without even having a conversation about it. So, listen, we all need to have a better environment. We all want that. We all want taxpayers not to be burdened too much. But there should be a, a compromise, and people should work together to find solutions. 
And that's why we're supporting common sense politicians who are not just going to talk a lot of hand-waving and crazy stuff during the campaign, but are going to govern and do things and support the voter when they actually are elected. we got a minute left. Anything else you want to tell all New Jerseyites? I'll tell you, this is a, John, this is an opportunity for New Jerseyans to get out and vote. The, the ballots are going to go out in another two weeks. A lot of vote-by-mail stuff, a lot of early voting. There's no excuse not to vote. The future of our states is in our in our hands. If we can get 45%, 40% turnout, we're going to win. It's got to get people to the polls to vote because they know the state's headed the wrong direction, whether it's the school issues, the education, the lack of parental involvement in things, the high cost of living, the environment, the crazy decisions they're doing, taking away our gas stoves, crazy stuff they're talking about. And crime is rising in both the urban areas, suburban areas. We need to move the state in the right direction. We get people off the vote, we're going to win and move our state in a much better direction. Last question. Trump, he's very controversial, especially here in the Northeast. New Jerseyites, how do they feel about it? You know, there's lots of people that support the president, the former president, very extensively. I, I think, unfortunately, for uh, Republicans in New Jersey, in the swing districts, he's highly, highly unpopular. And so... We're trying to keep this election about New Jersey issues, education, crime, cost of living, the environment. On those issues, Republicans win. Environment. In every district, the windmills. What are you, what no are you guys windmills. doing with the windmills? They're killing our whales. Get rid of them. Come on, it's ridiculous. They're not ready for prime time. The technology's not there yet. Eventually, there may be time I, I said that to. I said that to an environmentalist uh, friend of mine yesterday. Uh, you, know, you know what I said to them? I said to them, the windmills are killing uh, uh, the whales, they're killing the birds. And if it was really going to contribute to energy, I would say, you know, I'm a businessman. I'd say, let's do it. But it has a minuscule contribution to energy. And the conservationists that think that windmills are, are going to work, well, I'll sell them the Brooklyn Bridge. I, you know, yeah, that's and, and, uh, my feeling. They, they, all these companies have donated to these environmental funds. They're Get so me the list. I with, will make a disclosure. I will make a disclosure who's screwing us. They've been bought and sold. And that's yes. what's a shame. They stood up for all the I understand that. It's happened. Cowards. It happened in New York, too. The, some of the environmentalists are being bought and sold, and it's not good for our environment. It's very bad for our whales, and, and it's very bad for birds. And the amount of incremental energy we're going to get, how do you say it in Brooklyn? I'll teach you a Brooklyn word in New Jersey, bupkis. <laughs> exactly. It's, it ain't ready for prime time, and they're jamming it down our throats, and it's going to cost the average rate payer doubling their utility costs if we don't stop this madness. Well, thank you, Bob Hoogan, and keep us informed. we got six or seven weeks to go, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Hey, thanks, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. What is today is uh, Eric Shuffler, and he's the president of the Ferry Hawks in Staten Island. To bring us up to date, it's the end of the season. That's it. And uh, Eric, what's going on with the Ferry Hawks? It has been a year for the ages, John. I think it's that real year that you and I envisioned. The best view in baseball, the best stadium. We had record attendance. Team looks like it's going to fall a little bit short of the playoffs, but a huge improvement. You know, probably better than the Yankees and Mets did in terms of staying in the playoff hunt. A lot of really exciting things. We had 
our largest single day attendance with almost 4,000 people. We had a huge attendance on 4th of July. We broke in a world record with the autism community on Staten Island. So it was a year for the ages on Staten Island. Now, we're going into the fall. You had promised everybody in Staten Island and, uh, and lower Manhattan and Brooklyn and, and New Jersey that you're going to have some treats in the fall. Treats is a good word. I remember when you and I first talked about partnering up on the team, you said, Eric, we got to remember this is a year-round entertainment destination. So we're more than a baseball team. We have this incredible asset that needs to have entertainment and fun all year round. So in about three weeks, we are going to open up both a pumpkin patch on the baseball field, bouncy castles, come pick your own pumpkin, cider, and we're going to open up a haunted house at the stadium. I don't know of any other stadium that's going to have a haunted house that people are going to walk through tunnels on the stadium to get through a 40-minute haunted experience uh, all the month of October. Now, we didn't win the pennant this year. Came a little short. A little short. Ever since, uh, you know, in the minor league teams, they pulled that Japanese player from us to, to, to go to the San Francisco Giants, and he made a big difference. Uh, what a, happened? A huge, huge difference. We were very fortunate that one of Japan's all-time great sluggers, former major leaguer Yoshi Tsugo, wanted to come to Staten Island and play here. Good news is he had seven home runs in his first ten games. Bad news is the San Francisco Giants really like that and signed him away from us only after about 10 days. We have a lot of really good And we were almost, we were in first place just about. We were in first place at the time, and uh, your team struggled a little bit after that. But we're still going to have a much better year than last year. We stayed in the hunt for a long time. The fans really were excited, really appreciated. A lot of really good young players. A lot to look forward to on Staten Island. Well, next year, we got to win the pennant. We, you and I both, we have to win the pennant. Some other really cool things that we had this year. We had Wu-Tang at the stadium last night. Rizzo was there, and there was really a lot of promise of some new partnerships with Wu-Tang coming down the road. A lot of work we're doing with WABC on more entertainment. There was just a lot of really great things. We saw a lot more traffic from Manhattan coming into Staten Island, and we had the Savannah Bananas. Oh, that was a great day. I remember that every seat in the stadium was full. Two nights, two sellouts, 13,000 people in the stadium coming from 10 different states, a lot of people who haven't never been to the stadium. The reviews were amazing. The bananas were amazing. It was a real coup for Staten Island. Big economic development impact locally. More to come. Eric, as the time gets closer, let us know what events are going on, and we'll tell all the people. And uh, thank you. And you did a great job running the Ferry Hawks this year. And God bless you, and God bless America. God bless Staten Island. We're just getting started. With us today is Bernadette Castro, a famous name. I go back where Bernadette used to pull out that Castro convertible. Then I remember her as the state parks commissioner. Bernadette Castro, welcome to our show. And what have you been doing? Oh, John, first of all, so good to be with you. Um, You know, I was with you the other night with Governor Pataki on 9-11. It was so great to be with you and Margot and the governor and Libby. But I'm listening to your radio voice, and I didn't pick it up at the dinner table. You've really got a good radio voice, by the way. Well, but, maybe the microphone makes it better. I think it's good. But, you know, I want, I want to first start off by saying your book. Okay, I haven't finished it, but I've read a lot of books by self-made men. You know, they publish books. This one is fascinating. It's a fun read. It's a quick read. Well written. I mean, I love it. I really love it. So anybody that hasn't bought it that's listening, how far do you want to go by you? It's incredible. Well, you know? thank, you for, thank you for the plug. 
No, I now, mean it. I sincerely mean it, or I wouldn't have brought it up. Tell me your adventures when you were park commissioner and all the things that you accomplished. Oh, you're so nice. So here's something fun that you didn't mention. In between the little girl, which is my claim to fame, the little girl that opens the Castro, I was a wannabe rock and roll star, okay? So I had one hit that made the top 40, and it was an interesting part of my life. Barry Gordy auditioned me himself, and it, it was an interesting part. But then I had a family, and then I decided I really loved public service. I wanted to get into government. I ran with Governor Pataki with his team in 1994. Um, I was the only one on the ticket that lost because I ran against Daniel Patrick Moynihan. However, I took 42% of the vote. Nobody thought I could win, but I helped the governor win, and I loved it. So he said, I want you to be part of the cabinet. And I asked for this agency, Parks, Recreation, Historic Preservation. It was a great 12 years. How many parks does New York State have? We have 168 or so. Now, I've been out of government. You know, we were in 94 for 12 years. They could have added a few. I didn't do my homework and tell you exactly currently. But I think there's at least 168 state parks, the most famous ones being, of course, Jones Beach, Niagara Falls. We have Riverbank State Park in Manhattan, an incredible urban park in Harlem. Incredible. But we've got so many state parks, um, so much accessible, wonderful recreation for New Yorkers. And what's great is come November, I think it's Halloween, the fees get removed. So you don't have to pay a parking fee at Jones Beach. You can walk the boardwalk in the beautiful weather still. But there's a lot going on in state parks that your listeners should just go onto the website, New York State Parks, easy to pull up, and they should reserve a cabin for next season now. We, an example, in Montauk, we have Hither Hills State Park, one of the greatest ocean camping parks in the country. It's fabulous. So there's so much New Yorkers can take advantage of. And I used to say, you own these parks. I just take care of them for you. So get out there. It's a beautiful state. I tell Long Islanders, go to the Thousand Islands. On the St. Lawrence River, we have parks. I've and never been I there. John, you would love it. It's gorgeous. Look, I, I, I am enjoying this conversation. Uh, tell us, how long did you pull out that Castro convertible? For? <laughs> well, a long time. You know, I really, we sold the furniture division in 1993. My dad passed away in 91. So I was involved in the marketing end of the company until we sold it. But we would often do a new commercial with me as an adult using a flashback, a little insert, black and white, of the original. So people much younger than should have remembered me remember those commercials. But tell I me, was involved in the... Tell me also the song you sang and made the top 40. I can't sing it now. But no, you but can tell me what the name of it. It's got a crazy title, but it's a really good song. Are you ready for the crazy title? Yes. His lips get in the way, okay? Crazy title. Wow. It was 60s girl sound. It was really fun. So, yeah, YouTube. You can, you can listen to it on YouTube. There weren't videos in those days, but I, had a, I dropped out of college. I was very serious. I dropped out of the show business when, when Barry Gordy auditioned me in Detroit in his studio, and I would have been, I think, the first white female crossover artist that he was going to sign. And I had the most admiration for Motown, everything he did. But I realized with Barry Gordy, if you commit, you commit. And Bernadette Castro, we're out of time, but I enjoyed 
watching you pull out that uh, that convertible. I am happy to learn that you're a singer, and I'm gonna try to find that song. And I love, I love what you did with our park system. I love parks. I love our environment. And I love to continue this conversation in the future. And thank you so much for calling in this Sunday morning. Thank you so much, John. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. We'll catch up again soon. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. Uh, what is today is a retired uh, police captain, Edward Mamet, and he's got his ears to the ground and, and knows what's really going on. Uh, captain Mamet, uh, tell us, uh, I hear that arrests are down, but that's because nobody's arresting anybody. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. Arrests are down, morale is terrible, and one, one of the problems they're having today is the cops are being forced to work more overtime than they ever did. Now, there was a time when they loved the overtime because it was extra money in their pocket. But now, they're being, uh, their days off are canceled, their lost time they can't take. And a lot of these single cops, you know, they want to date, they want to have uh, fun, and they're being forced to work, and they're tired. So the morale is really, really down. And as far as arrests go, they're disenchanted because they realize that every time they make an arrest, you know, there's, there's no bail. The person that they arrested is, is out quickly, and they see them again out on the street, and they arrest them again. So it's like a hopeless cause, and they just gave up. They'll make their overtime and go home, go to sleep and come back and work again. Uh, understand. And I, you know, I've talked to several police officers myself and, and, you know, they're not allowed to talk because, they, you know, they're going to get disciplined if they talk to the press. They're scared to arrest anybody. They're scared of getting in trouble for arresting somebody because somebody's always taping them. Not that they're doing anything wrong, but the insinuations are many, many insinuations we put out there. And well, uh, another problem. There, there are so many restrictions. You know, the city council passed these ridiculous laws in the name of racial equality to hit that hinder the police. You have the chest compression law. If a police officer applies the force the wrong way, he's subject to arrest. Uh, you have the, this, the taking away by the city council of qualified immunity, which protected officers from liability suits. You have some other laws. You know, the city council is not supporting the police department. So the cops feel they, they're boxed in. They, you know, they're forced into overtime. They're afraid to make arrests because uh, of the restrictions they're under. And so, and there's no leadership from the top of the police department. So everything has gone astray. Retirements, are they up? What do you hear? Yes, uh, for many reasons. One, one of it is many of the cops don't see a future in the city of New York anymore, so they don't stay like I did. I stayed 40 years. They do their 20 or, or less, and they get out. Uh, not only that, they're making so much overtime, uh, uh, that's pensionable. So with all that overtime, it pays for them to retire. So, you know, it's hurting the city in another way. You're paying these cops overtime, but the pension costs are out there. So that and the fact that recruitment is low uh, because People, people don't see a future in the police. So there's a problem all around. What would you like to tell all New Yorkers? You've lived in New York all your life. You served. How many years were you at the NYPD? 39 years, nine months, six days. You didn't complete 40 years? Uh, I was about three months short. But I say 40, it's easier than to say 39, nine, six. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still going on or people are not uh, uh, police officers? I understand there's big recruitments on for them to go to North Carolina, Tennessee, Florida. Oh yeah, the the other states are, are, they love to have New York City cops because the the cops are well trained, 
they bring in, they import a cop from New York, they have someone who's well-trained. They can probably put them right out there on the street. And they offer better benefits, higher salaries, and, you know, they're probably much more supportive of their police, especially a state like Florida. You know, they back the cops all the way. Well, Captain Mamet, thank you for your service. Thank you for everything you've done. And you know something even more important? Thank you. In your retirement, you're able to tell all New York City people the truth. Thank you so much. And let me thank you for allowing um, Kevin Schroeder and I to um, uh, be on your radio show. And tell us about your podcast on WABCRadio.com. You have been graciously have given us that is on weekly. And we interview people from all over the world regarding major issues in law enforcement, crime, and so on. And it's called Cop Talk. And it's usually, it's recorded weekly, and it usually plays uh, the, every Tuesday. And we've Thank you so games. much. Well, with us today is uh, Thierry Cajunut, and uh, he is a film producer. And I had the privilege of being with him a couple weeks ago at the grand opening at the United Nations of the Mother Teresa film, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and, and it really opens up our eyes and what people can do. Uh, good morning, Thierry. How are you? Thanks for having me. Tell us about why you did this Mother Teresa film. And it was a beautiful film. It exemplifies her work, how a a poor person from the middle of nowhere can rise up and do so much good in the world. Yes. Well, the idea for the movie or the inspiration came from the actress who eventually played it, um, Jacqueline Fritchie Corna. And she was in India for the first time, and she saw this this kid on the street in extreme poverty, and she was so shook that she thought she had to do something. And a few days later, she was in the producer's office in Bollywood, and she saw a big painting of Mother Teresa. And then she, she had this inspiration that that's it. That's what we have to do. We have to make a movie about Mother Teresa, inspire the world by what she done, and uh, inspire people to do small acts of kindness everywhere and thus create a better world. You know, small acts of kindness, you know, when you smile to someone or you help them cross the street or buy their groceries, you recognize them in their human dignity. And just that is, is enormous and changes the world. So that's really was the inspiration for, for making this movie. And now you have a, a, a great film, and I understand it's opening up in New York soon? Yeah, it's, it's opening actually nationwide on October 5th. By uh, with Fatim Events distributing it, and it's a one night only event. So it's like a concert coming to your town. So people have to get on board and and go see it and buy pre buy tickets because if the cinema sees that there is a demand for it, well they'll add show times, they add days, but but you cannot just show up on uh, on game day. You have to pre buy so they, they, they the the cinemas get the feeling that something going on and. And you can do that at fathomevents.com slash events slash mother hyphen Teresa hyphen and hyphen me. You know, the name of the movie is Mother Teresa and Me. They could also Google Fathom Event Mother Teresa and they'll get right on it. Yes. Okay. So you type in Mother Teresa on it, Mother Teresa film on Google, and you can probably find it. Yeah, and you can type in then when you're on the website, you type in your zip code, you type in your your city, and you'll get immediately the theaters near you, the closest to you, and it's playing 800-plus cinemas in nationwide, 41 cinemas in the New York and New Jersey area. 
theory. Thank you so much. I'll be watching it. Uh, I'll be, I'm going to go to the theater near me. and the New York, It opens up to the New York theaters on October 5th and also nationwide. I urge everybody to go see it. And thank you so much for doing it, and we'll catch up again real soon. Thank you, John. So it's FatimEvents.com. Thank you so much, John, for having me. This is John Katzmatidis. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCRadio.com. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.